Welcome to My Dog Ate My Book Report, a podcast where two weirdo 30-somethings take turns introducing each other to a formative book from childhood the other has never read. However, this is episode five, so we're doing something a little different. Today we are revisiting some of the books we have already discussed by watching their film adaptations. Boy, did we. Yeah. I mean, sort of. Most of some. (laughs) Most of some. (laughs) It's fine. I'm Ren. (laughs) I'm Brandon. (laughs) This is a show we've done. Yeah. Sure is. (laughs) All right. Well, let's get get right down to it. Um, What we did manage to watch was A Cry in the Wild the 1990 film adaptation of Hatchet with a different name. And we watched about 40 minutes of the Hardy Boys and the Applegate Treasure, the 1956 Disney miniseries adaptation of the first Hardy Boys book, The Tower Treasure. Yeah, it was a a part of the Mickey Mouse Club, a 19-part serial. How many parts did we watch? Five, six? Three. Three? Yep. Oh, golly. We tried. Yep. We tried, folks. If there's folks listening to this, we, 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 we gave it a go. Well, and let's be clear. It wasn't like... It wasn't like something stopped us. It's on YouTube. You yourself could go watch all almost four hours of The Mystery of the Applegate Treasure from the Mickey Mouse Club right now. Um... Not that I'm endorsing piracy. It's not really piracy. Isn't it sort of public domain at this point? It's 1956. How many years does it need to be? We should probably know the answer to these things. But it's Disney. That is fair. Yeah, when a copyright is owned by an entity like Disney, it gets practically very, very long, which is why, you know, uh, a lot of things that are owned by big studios and such are, are still not public domain, even if they're fairly old. Um, and a lot of, a lot of that is because of uh, laws that were and have been championed by companies like Disney. Um, I will say the theme song for the Hardy boys and the applicate treasure, the first 15 seconds of it or so kind of sucked me in. I was into it. They, they took what what is a story about a stolen car and then some missing like paperwork and bonds <laughs> and turned it into a pirate mystery sorta we actually you know 40 minutes in i'm actually still not sure where the pirate stuff comes in or if it's ever going to tie back in but the theme song leads us to believe that it's actually stolen pirate treasure. Yeah, it's um. Well, maybe we should just uh, yeah, get get into it. So uh. This this um the serial was the mystery of the Applegate treasure. It was the first, as far as I could tell, um adaptation of anything Hardy Boys um. Into film or television, uh, it was a part of the Mickey Mouse Club, um. And if you are not particularly familiar with what the Mickey Mouse Club is, which would be forgiven because 
it doesn't last for very long whenever they make one. Um, it was sort of a... Uh, like a variety show, almost. My, my very limited understanding of it was that it was Disney's early attempts at a young talent sort of like churning through mechanism. Yeah, they had like the Mouseketeers were all of these young actors and actresses, presumably that, you know, Disney was hoping to parlay into, into popular stars, etc. Um, and they would do a variety of things. Like there was sometimes songs and performances and stuff like that. Of course, the, uh, the, the, probably the best known thing in, in the, the zeitgeist, uh, about the Mickey Mouse Club is still the, uh, the, the, the theme song or the, or the, like, I don't know, um, you know, the M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. That's the Mickey Mouse. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I just thought that was some random, like, commercial jingle thing. Nope. That, uh, that is the, at least I'm, I'm pretty sure that is, like, the theme to the Mickey Mouse Club. Huh. Um, and it would be, like, the Mouseketeers are singing it, right? I see. That makes sense. Uh, I, I might be incorrect. I, I am not a real authority on, on mid-century disney but uh i i believe that that is where that comes from um but they also did as part of the mickey mouse club some of uh these like serials that would be segments of the show so not the entire thing um and would put some of the members of the mickey mouse club right in, in these in these uh serials I think, maybe. One presumes. I might be wrong. That's my understanding. I haven't found a lot of, like, good details specifically about the um, the Mickey Mouse Club serial adaptation um, as far as, like, how it happened, why it happened, etc. Um, but it was 1956, so... It was actually, you know, well after the Hardy Boys had become a fixture, right? Uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't an adaptation that was made like hot on the heels of these books starting to be published. Um, no, but it was, you know, it was right before they did the edit, right? If if I recall was, correctly, that was nineteen fifty nine was when they did the edit. Yeah, it was a few years before they started to go back and edit the earlier books. Um, and I do not know if that's a coincidence or not. <laughs> um, because this serial, at least from the part that we watched uh, before we decided we didn't care enough <laughs> to watch more of it, um, doesn't bear a lot of similarity to the book. Um, a lot of the names are the same. But that's about as far as it goes. Uh, yeah, the, the, so. I feel like the names were the same. The crime was not the same. The suspects were not the same. It just, I don't know. It, if, Despite the fact that the theme song made it seem like 
it was going to be more high stakes pirate treasure. It actually felt like it made it just kind of way, way lower stakes, just like this delinquent kid getting into some trouble situation. It it bore it bore to me very little resemblance to the story. <laughs> well, from from what I've been able to scrape together, um, uh, it you know eventually a treasure does go missing, and it is incidentally formally a pirate treasure but that was like in the possession of Herd Applegate who's still a wealthy old codger. Um, so it just kind of, it, it, it turns the, it turns the uh, jewels and bonds of the book into, you know, a, a, a treasure that was originally the, the ill-gotten gains of pirates and has through the years fallen into the hands of Herd Applegate for one reason or the other. I'm not really sure why. That's fair. But but the first mystery that they show us is go find that girl's missing lipstick or whatever. <laughs> the thing that got me was that the Hardy Boys books were part of an attempt to attract young readers by being books that felt like they were dealing with adult topics, right? Um, that was kind of the notion of the Hardy Boys and various other books that the Stratmeyer syndicate did was this sense that like all the children's books that existed at the time, you know, were, were children's books. They, they dealt with child things and kind of talked down to the readers. Right. And there wasn't really a middle ground. Uh, and then the serial kind of takes everything and it, it ages the Hardys down a bit. Um, they're like 14 and 15. Uh, I think is at least what their actors were. Uh, and they sort of live on like what seems to be a very stereotypical 50s American suburban street. Um, uh, they're friends with Eola Martin, not Morton. Mm. And Chet is nowhere to be found. <laughs> and Eola is kind of has a has a like love-hate relationship thing with, with Joe, I think, in that way that like you see with people writing like twelve year olds who like each other but don't know how to express it yet. Um and and yeah, like you said, it kind of begins with uh some of her stuff going missing and and overall just really feels like the Hardys are are, are getting into just being like these kids who have a treehouse or something in the backyard where they find missing pets or some such, right? It doesn't have the sort of feeling that they are involved in adult things. Um, yeah, and the dad kind of I feel like treats them like they're just a little bit of a nuisance and doesn't involve them in, in his, in his detectiving. I, I felt like it, it really, I feel like for a book adaptation to, I don't know, be, be at least tolerable to me, it has to, you know, at least try to, 
to sort of capture like the heart of of the book and this just completely missed it it felt like they didn't understand what it was about you know made it younger and just more childish and i don't know i didn't love the the book the 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 tower treasure but i feel like this was still a disservice to it yeah it at least felt like one of the to me one of those adaptations where um it feels like somebody had a mystery story about two brothers who do mysteries on on their block around their block uh and someone just pointed out like oh that's kind of like the hardy boys and they were like okay let's just take the names and call it an adaptation and like we see the like that kind of adaptation happens uh, with some frequency you know in in um even even today where so many things are different that it's just like this isn't the same thing um uh you know like for for example the one that springs to my mind and is probably not the best example because not a lot of people have seen it but if you've seen it you know um that the Earthsea miniseries oh, that the no. Sci-Fi Channel did in the early 2000s oh no really just feels like somebody had a kind of half-baked um Harry Potter ripoff that they wanted to make and then somebody pointed out that there is part of uh, a Wizard of Earthsea where uh Ged or Sparrowhawk is at a uh Sparrowhawk, Sparrowhawk, Sparrowhawk magic school Sparrowhawk. um sorry <laughs> yeah thank you that that I could I could go on for literal hours about that series <laughs> I kind of love it for just how terrible it is, not only as an adaptation, but just like as a piece of a film. Um, that exactly though, though hits my point though. It, it it also feels like it does a disservice to its to its origin material because it just doesn't understand the the point or the like the heart of the story that it's trying to adapt. And it wasn't a matter of forty five minutes in. I you know flipped a table in disgust. It was more just forty five minutes in. I felt like. I needed to take a nap. Pretty yeah, badly. it was just kind of. It was. It was just kind of uninteresting. It just made um, me sleepy and apathetic. Yeah, I, I think I think I would like it okay if I had been watching it in serial form, where I was getting fifteen minutes at a time. I, th- I think that like having a, a gap of at least a day or two between pieces probably would have somewhat hidden the pacing issue, maybe. Um, but trying to watch it in a block, it just feels like it's 100% filler. Um, and it's not, you know, the actors are doing a decent job. The writing's not bad as far as the dialogue and stuff is concerned. The characters have a lot more actual personality than in the book. Um, and, and so forth. So like, there's a lot of good things about it. It's just kind of one of those adaptations that it's, it's not, it's not super true to the book uh in in plot or in spirit and it's competent without being exceptional right and for me 
that's like the worst thing an adaptation can be, right? Is just kind of in the middle. I either want the adaptation to be like, wow, this just makes me feel like I'm reading it again for the first time. It's amazing. Or how did this train wreck happen? Why did they make all these decisions? You know, <laughs> and this is just not either of those. I, I am fortunate in that the Hardy Boys was one of your picks. So it was not something I read as a child. And so seeing this adaptation didn't, you know, hurt me in my soul or whatever. No, <laughs> oh, I, don't, I don't have a strong enough emotional adaptation to the Hardy Boys to uh, be bothered by this either way. That is fair. That was where I was going to segue to a cry in the wild hurt me in my soul somewhere or whatever. I don't necessarily like believe in souls or whatever, but it 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 stung. We did make our way through the entire one hour and twenty one minutes of a cry in the wild. Yeah, because it was a it was a reasonable length for a thing. I'm I'm proud of myself for that. It was well. What did you think? I mean, I kind of feel like it's in the same place. Honestly, it just kind of is a little bit nothing. Um. It was truer to the book than I expected, though, to be honest. Yeah, well, yeah. Because um, honestly, going in, you know, we, we were both like, how do, how do they do, how do you do this? How do you do Hatchet as a movie? Because it's just Brian in the woods by himself a lot. Um, my expectation was that they would just add a bunch of scenes where we're like, cutting between um, what Brian's up to and then like back to like the parents or the people looking for him, et cetera. And kind of have having, having this plot that just doesn't exist in the book as a, a time where like the actors they, they have for the parents and the adults can like talk about things and there can be some sort of like through line there so that, when they're when they are following Brian around in the woods, it's it's not like this movie has no dialogue. Um, so the fact that what they they actually mostly do just follow Brian around in the woods uh, was not what I expected to get. Yeah, and I don't know if that's good or not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, okay. So so a cry in the wild, as we discussed in in our very first episode where we discussed Hatchet. Uh still you know inexplicably changed the name and it was filmed in 1989 filming took a whole eight weeks and uh they just kind of went out into the backyard or whatever in in california and filmed this thing and so yeah brandon is right they did just follow brian around and watched him do stuff and scream a lot. And without the internal monologue and, you know, really digging into, you know, all of the sort of, you know, mental anguish and, and problem solving and stuff that Brian goes through in the book, it's really just a weird California boy fumbling around the woods grunting making weird little accents at worms and yeah. screaming a lot yeah he talks to himself a lot 
Um, which is fine. Which- it's fine. I, yeah. I think it's completely reasonable for somebody to wander around the woods and talk to themselves. I know I would talk to myself. But... <laughs> and, and, there's a, and there's a few lines where he says things that, like, made no sense to us. I, I'm trying to remember the line he said to the... About, like... Uh, I can't even remember now. Well, he when he, he found berries, and he walks up to the berries, and he's like get ready to meet superior life forms and just shoves all the berries in his mouth. And I'm just like, what? Yeah. What is this? Which is weird. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, this, this is a thing that makes sense in Brian's head because he's been spending the last 20 minutes thinking about like the, the episode of TNG he's missing right now. Oh no. And we as the audience only get the the part at the end where he vocalizes something weird to go with his internal monologue that he's having. Um, Yes. So much of the strength of Hatchet is in Brian's internal monologue. And like one of the things that I, I, I remember strongly is the scene where he figures out, you know, the water refraction in the book. And that's how he's like, okay, that's how I fish. You know, I have to do it at an angle. And he doesn't do that in the movie. He just stabs at the water a bunch of times and then finally is like, yeah, I got a fish and waves it around. And, you know, figuring out how to start the fire was also just a completely flat scene because he just hits a rock with the hatchet a couple of times and then he starts screaming around the woods, no mud, no mud, for like five five repetitions of no mud. And it just seems like this poor boy is just you know, going a little crazy out in the forest. Well, which which is compounded by the fact that later on, he starts to see things. Oh, yeah. Right. I forgot about Ghost Wolf. Yeah. So, like, yeah. After, so the, the moose attack is replaced by a bear attack, for one. Um, which we posited while we were watching it, because we watched it together, that maybe it was because bears were more trainable to attack somebody without hurting them yeah. than a moose, which I think is probably true. It, yeah. Um, and so at, when Brian like drags himself back onto solid ground, but he's kind of bloodied and stuff and he sort of passes out on the, uh, the shore of the lake for a little bit. First we see, so Brian has a dog. Not with him, but like when his mom drops him off to get on the plane at the beginning of the movie, there's a dog. So Brian has a dog. And so first um, we see Brian's dog walk up to him when he's laying there and start to lick like his wounded arm. Uh, And of course, we're like, hold on a sec. How does his dog get here? And then it kind of stirs Brian awake and then he looks over and it's not his dog. It's a wolf. A white wolf. A white wolf. And then it's like, oh no, a wolf. And the wolf growls at him. And then he tells the wolf to go away. And then the wolf vanishes. And then vanishes. Vanishes. Like like a dissolve effect on video vanishes. And then reappears yeah. on the shore of the lake on the other side of the lake. Yeah. 
teleporting white ghosty wolves. Yeah. Yes. Also, there's a um, there's a bear cub subplot where Brian kills a mother bear and finds its cubs. And then Brian decides to basically raise the cubs for a little while by feeding it fish, feeding them fish. Yeah. Yeah, the bear the bear comes back to finish the job several times, and at one of those points, I thought he was hallucinating the bear also, but then he like stabs the bear and it's surprisingly gory. It's it's not very, you know, convincing or anything, but it, it was it was more than I expected this film to show. Um uh Yeah, and then he he discovers after that that there are some bear cubs. What I have to say about that is that Book Brian would have eaten those baby bears. Book Brian would have seen two vulnerable small chunks of meat that would be easy to kill, and he would have eaten them. He also probably, I think, would have gone looking for the body of the mother bear and eaten that too. Book Brian was a lot smarter than Movie Brian. Yeah, Movie Brian went and caught some fish and brought them to the to the bears which you know is nicer i would feel bad if he killed the bear cubs yes yeah absolutely i i just think you know it it really highlighted the difference between how you know sort of in his head survivalist book brian got and i think that they tried to show that a little bit with the weird tacked on scenes that they added at the end of the movie, after he'd been rescued, where he's walking through a grocery store, kind of befuddled. And then he, like, gets into bed, and he's just, like, staring around, and he looks a little lost. And then it and then it cuts to the camp where he's left the hatchet, which I don't think is true. Um, where he's left the hatchet, stuck in a tree, where he's carved home into the tree. And I think that those scenes together are supposed to make us think... Oh, okay, Brian's really at home in the woods now, and now he's actually kind of messed up, which makes sense, but they just didn't lean into it enough for it really to be particularly impactful, I think. I almost want to applaud them for this specific choice, even though it doesn't actually end up working. But again, since I had kind of expected the parents and stuff to have more scenes with dialogue so that there would be dialogue in the movie um we do get to see him like actually get back to his parents you know in in, in the book he just kind of gets on the rescue plane and we don't really have scenes after that yeah they um, they kept the last line which i i liked which was yeah would you like something to eat um but then he gets back like, like we see the rescue plane land at an airport and both of his parents are there. Um, you know, we see his dad first, but then he turns and he sees his mom and his dog. So like they've come to where the dad is or, or, or where somebody, it's unclear where they landed. Right. But the parents have come back together, at least physically speaking to, to meet Brian at the airport and, yeah, then it kind of goes into yes, th- this this like weirdly delirious scene at the grocery store because like it's it's sort of very muted, 
uh, and filmed in kind of a, a hazy sort of way. Uh, like, honestly, the, the whole... There, there really isn't any dialogue between them at that point, right? We don't have a time where we, like, see or at least hear, like, his parents ask what he's been through or even, like, say, you know, I'm so glad you're all right or whatever. There's no real dialogue. Uh, and it kind of makes the entire thing feel, I choose to read this movie now, uh, now that I've said this um, for a few, now that I've rambled for a few minutes, I choose to read this movie as everything, everything that happened, uh, uh, like, up to the rescue plane is real and like the rescue plane onward is just some kind of weird dream state because it seemed so strange and like weird and oddly like psychological horror or something like 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 brian like brian is trapped in this weird fantasy where he's like with his divorced parents and they're together and stuff and it's like i don't know it's it's strange the the other thing i delight in the moment where he like looks out his bedroom window in a flashback to see his dad like get into a truck to drive away and he and he shouts dad no but he shouts it much more than i just did and it's like extended it's like an extended no he holds that for a while and like as he's like shouting no in a very long like how how long can he hold this no before he just sort of passes out from oxygen deprivation, he also punches the window. Mm -hmm. And so like Brian already shouted about things a lot before he got lost in the woods. And then when he gets home, he doesn't shout about anything. There was there like was so much shouting. They could have, they could have just like, he could have, he could have looked at some, carrots and looked at the price tag and found that it was <laughs> an unreasonable price for carrots carrots no he could have shouted no and, and like his mom could have hugged him and <laughs> i don't know oh gosh it was very interesting that they decided to take the whole secret subplot and uh, turn it into this I don't know, moment where like the dad confronts him about what he saw. Like, cause I don't know. It was all still like this secret that he had been keeping within him um, in the book, but it, it clearly is not a secret and is all out there in the, in the movie. Yeah. They make it pretty clear that um, Brian at some point told his dad it, it still wasn't clear in the movie whether or not that was something that like his dad kind of knew about uh already or suspected already and like was going to brian for more information right um but but it's, it's certainly more explicit as far as how that goes down in, in the movie than in the book and they sprinkle it in through the movie a little bit more um, than the book does, but not not by a lot. 
I guess my only other sort of like, and this is really such a small thing. It's barely worth mentioning, but I'm going to do it anyway because I'm a jerk. I don't like his jacket. <laughs> First yeah. off, because it's got such like product placement on it, it makes me feel like the movie was probably sponsored by Columbia Outerwear or something. But also, I don't like that they gave him this like three season nice brand new jacket to wear for this whole whole thing where in the book he has just a, a crummy flimsy windbreaker that gets all torn up and so he he's cold yeah. and uncomfortable and his clothes as a whole uh survive this movie pretty pretty well all things considered he really doesn't um it's not super clear how long he's out in the woods in the movie, but it seems like a much smaller amount of time, just judging by like how much his hair grew out and the fact that his clothes were not just co totally disintegrating. Um, but because we don't have that internal monologue, we don't we don't have. They started almost giving us a way to know how long he was in the woods because he started doing this little like what's it called a, ha a hash mark or something yeah when when you start like cutting lines into a thing to show how many days time has passed and he started that he was like you know this is the day the plane crashed this is the day this happened this is the day that happened but then they never they never really cut back to it to show us yeah. how many marks were on it yeah yeah so i i got the vibe that it was a much shorter amount of time um but it's not clear how much but yeah, he he doesn't he doesn't get as as banged up. His clothes survive pretty well. So so ultimately, I feel like that movie also really missed the mark and what Hatchet is even about. Yeah. It didn't make me tired, at the very least. <laughs> it yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a bad movie, I guess. It also wasn't very long. It was only like 80 minutes. Which is pretty there short. were so many things that I just would like sit up and go, what? That I feel like, you know, I was at least still engaged by how yeah. confused I was. Well, and I, and I enjoyed, I enjoyed all the, all the shouting and stuff. Some, some of it gets hammy enough that I'm like kind of there for it. Oh, I wasn't sure if you meant his shouting or my shouting <laughs> at the movie. Mostly his shouting. Um, <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, uh and and it did I feel like they at least did more or less hit most of the sort of bulleted plot events that occur. <laughs> like like if like if you boiled Hatchet down to strictly just the events that happen and none of the like whys or wherefores, um you know, they had they they had the the he learns to fish somehow, sort of he messes with a bow and arrow, he figures out fire not in this order, obviously. Uh he has that incident with the porcupine. Um he, he eventually goes and there's a there's a big um you know, storm, and that makes the plane visible, and then he goes out there. Like, like they hit a lot of the 
plot points. None of it is really invested with sort of the substance of the things attached to those plot points in the book. But, you know. Yeah, yeah, I'll give it that. They very clearly did read the book. <laughs> so, so, so good for them for doing that bare minimum of work. So, we usually, you know, will rate the book that we have read, but I don't feel like we need to do, do any rating for this because it would just be more grumbling. So I thought maybe what we would then sort of pivot to is, you know, book adaptations in general and maybe thinking of some good book adaptations so that we have some positivity in this episode. I mean, appropriately, because our rating system is based on Giant Peaches, which is a book that we both really enjoyed. I think James and the Giant Peach, the Tim Burton version, even though I know Tim Burton is kind of not everyone's favorite person at this point, but it was the 90s and Tim Burton was very popular and he made a very good adaptation of James and the Giant Peach, I thought. Yeah, super good. I, l- I like that movie a lot. I feel like the stop motion style really, really <laughs> kind of like sent it over the edge from eh to no, this is this is real good because it made it weird and kind of otherworldly and very, very, very much meshed with the whole weirdness of that story to begin with. Yeah, I think I think that um, Tim Burton adapting uh, Roald Dahl is, is a pretty logical direction to go in. Obviously, it doesn't work out great all the time. But in that case, I think it, it fit pretty well. Um, they're, they're, they both have these sort of similar dark, quirky sensibilities. Um, so I think, I think that one turned out really good. I don't remember enough about how like how faithfully it follows the book although i do feel like it's you know pretty pretty close if i recall which it has been a a while it was it was pretty darn faithful but like in any in any adaptation to a different medium some decisions should be made to like some some changes should be made to adapt to the medium that you're working you know yeah but um, but it also you know it hit the important point i broke i i brought up before about what what i need at least in a book adaptation is it needs to get the point of it mm-hmm. and it, it definitely got got the feel of it so yeah so that was that was one that came to mind which you know matched up with our rating system yeah um I mean, for me, kind of the the bar for book to movie adaptations uh, is Jurassic Park. Mm. You know, um, in Jurassic Park, the film would have been formative for me in, in the sort of time that we've been talking about. Though I didn't read the book until quite a bit later, 
but I think I think Jurassic Park is a better movie than it is a book. It's a good book. I like the book a lot too. Um, and there's definitely some like pretty big departures as far as what the movie's doing versus what the book was doing. But I, I think I think the movie just kind of works better. I um, it's hard for me to be really unbiased about that because i loved jurassic park so much and as as the movie and i also saw it first but i do know that i immediately ran to go read the book and i was like 10 and i do remember that the book scared the crap out of me because it had pterodactyls in it and like a really horrifying pterodactyl scene um so i did i did get a lot out of the book having read it after seeing the movie but um they're both real good yeah yeah the book the book is great um the body count is higher yes. uh, <laughs> it, it, it is definitely a, a little bit darker in that regard and um you know it, it deep dives as, as michael Crichton is wont to do it deep dives into uh like some of the science it, more so than the movie does certainly um, which, which for me is often a plus in a uh, sci-fi thriller, but maybe not for everybody. So take that as you will, if you're sitting here wondering if you should read Jurassic Park. But um, yeah, it, it's it's still a very good book um, that I really enjoy. But I think that some of the some of the changes. Um, for for the movie certainly are are helpful like i like that for instance uh ian malcolm doesn't die um he ba- he's almost a non-entity in the book um i think that the world would have revolted had they yeah had they done that <laughs> in the movie my other two examples which i'll get into of really good book adaptations i had this whole spiel in my mind about how maybe it's the music that makes it because they're two very musical adaptations and then when you said jurassic park i was like oh that kind of breaks my premise and i was like wait no jurassic park has amazing music mm-hmm. um james and the giant peach also had really good music cry in the wild had weird plinky horror stingers randomly yeah it had it had a pretty subdued uh soundscape and a lot of it got like weirdly synthy sometimes in a way that didn't yeah i guess was kind of of the time for a thing that came out in 1990 but didn't really fit the material like you knew the bear was coming when the you know friday the 13th music started yeah (laughs) it's like what what is happening yeah that's why i'm saying the ending is like some kind of weird psychological horror thing like a cry in the wild (laughs) is adapting Hatchet into horror. Yeah. And it's just doing it stealthily. I mean, I really feel like you could take Hatchet and adapt it into a pretty serious, like, thriller sort of horror thing. There's there's some scary shit that happens. I think you could make it a pretty dark movie. Yeah. Especially reading the sequels and knowing his whole psychological state afterwards. If I... If I somebody asked me, hey, recut A Cry in the Wild, I would be like, okay, good. Oh my, okay. Keep, keep it all the same until he gets out to the plane. 
uh, after the plane resurfaces. He bangs on it for a while. I would just add in one of his breaks between banging on it from inside the plane. Oh my god! <laughs> no! Then I cut to black, roll credits. No! That's so fucked up. So, other than Jurassic Park, were there any others that you could think of? I don't know. Um, th- there are there are certainly adaptations that I like, but for different reasons, right? Like uh, <laughs> Starship Troopers, for example. Um, <gasps> yeah, yeah. Uh, is 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 kind of a parody of the book almost. Um, so it, it's it's you know it's a film that arguably understands what the book is saying, but decides that what the book is saying is stupid. Mm. Uh, fairly and i i really like um that film i also really liked the book uh we might read it at some point because i did read it kind of in during school um you know i i never was like on board with its politics but i enjoyed it anyway um so we might i might submit subject you to that at some point Oh, you know what is one that I frequently forget? Well, I grew up on the animated Charlotte's Web, certainly, and and just didn't quite attach to the book as much at, when I read it. That may very well be a matter of, like, having seen the movie so many times before I ever read the book. Um, but that for sure was a thing. Charlotte's Web is um, the second one on my list. Mm. some people think yeah. you know maybe it's kind of sacrilegious and i do really love the book the especially the illustrations garth williams is basically the illustrator of most of my childhood but the movie and the songs so good yeah and, and T- you know templeton's song oh god <laughs> it's so good yeah uh and uh keeping keeping with you know uh, musical uh adaptations um, you know, frankly, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You know, mm. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The book is fine. The Tim Burton movie is weird, even if it is more faithful to the book than Willy Wonka. I forgot is. they did a remake. I didn't see it. Yeah, that's why. That's why earlier I kind of avoided just outright saying Tim Burton and Roald Dahl. Oh, okay. Because that one doesn't. I thought maybe you were making a reference to something, but I couldn't think of what you were talking about. It, and I didn't want to sound it, like I didn't know what I was talking about on this year podcast. So I didn't say anything. I mean, it is it is more faithful to the book. Like, like Willy Wonka do, does not really get the tone either, right? Because it's, it's very sort of like, it's still weird and has like moments of weird darkness, obviously. But it's much more fanciful in a way than Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is. Um, So I do think that the Tim Burton Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is on paper, uh, well, not even on paper, is truer to the book. I think that Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory 
is a better film. Um, and also just better than the book. I'm sorry if you love Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, listeners. It's it's a fine book. It's it's a <laughs> fine book. But Willy Wonka is just amazing. Um, and a lot of that, yeah, is down to like Gene Wilder's portrayal of the character and some of the set pieces and stuff. Like, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but but that's another one that like like with Jurassic Park, I would say, is just strictly better than the than the book. Yeah. So my 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 final, I think this adaptation was brilliant. Maybe even liked it better than the book. Is the last unicorn also has very strong musical musical uh, moments that make me cry. <laughs> I didn't I make you watch that for the first time a couple years ago? Mm-hmm. Okay, I, cu- yeah, I couldn't remember. I've still not read it, so I can't make the book movie comparison. But yeah, the movie's really really nice. It's pretty. It's very somber in a way that is kind of haunting. Well, I know I saw it for the first time when I was really young. And the Red Bull definitely gave me a lot of nightmares. Why were you drinking Red Bull when you were really young? (laughs) You know, I was so confused when they released Red Bull as a drink. I was just like, what does this have to do with The Last Unicorn? (laughs) Because that was my only context. And I'm kind of wondering... With the exception of a couple of them, if maybe it's just that animation is sometimes better at adapting books than live action. I mean, certainly when you get to into fantasy and stuff, I think I think where a lot of adaptations stumble is making those worlds feel as like legitimate, I guess as they feel when they're just on the page and you're imagining them, right? Because there's plenty of relatively inoffensive adaptations of fantasy novels and stuff that just kind of don't really hold together. They're not just they're just not quite as good either because they clearly omit parts that they just were too expensive to make, right? Or they try to make things that clearly didn't really have the budget to pull off or or whatever, right? Um like it's a big reason why it took decades and decades for Lord of the Rings to get live action movies. Um, because like people were trying for ages since, you know, the, the books were big, but it was always kind of like, there's no way we could ever film these. There's just no way. Um, and even, even the animated attempts were like strapped for the, necessary funds to uh bring lord of the rings to life um yes the lord of the rings specifically were kind of an animated mess but the hobbit animated movie is wonderful it's quite good yeah (laughs) okay yeah just so we're the hobbit just so we're clear here yeah The, the the hobbit works pretty well um i really like that movie uh and and I guess ultimately it's just kind of like there's so much more going on in Lord of the Rings, right? Um, and there's so much many more like big scenes that would need a lot of stuff happening. These big battles and all these different locations. 
and characters and stuff like that. And, um, you know, that's, that's where they struggle. And, you know, if somebody had made like a live action Lord of the Rings in the nineties or whatever, probably wouldn't have gone great. Right. Oh gosh. Well, I think we have an episode. Yeah. Uh, what are we going to do next time? So, well, we are swapping up the order because we were going Ren, Brandon, Ren, Brandon, and now we're going to go Brandon, Ren, Brandon, Ren until our next increment of five special episode. So, the next thing we're reading... Caves of Steel by Isaac Asimov. Which I have in my possession right now. I'm very excited. Good. What's the sort of like age level that this was for? Um, so Cage of Steel was, uh, you know, in theory, a proper novel. I don't, it wasn't like written for YA or anything. It isn't a very long novel, um, or a very like hard one, but I, I, it wasn't written for like a juvenile audience in particular, I don't believe. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure if this was the first, I think this is the first sort of not children's book that we're hitting. I believe that is accurate. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not it's not we're not like moving to really advanced content or or whatever. But it is I think the first thing we've hit that was not written with you know young, young adults in mind as the primary reader. So we will be we will be you know bouncing back to more more children's books soon. But we've got a couple of you know air quotes here that you can't see adult books that we read at. Probably not ages that we were supposed to read them, but it's fine. We were weird kids, and um, you probably know that by now, dear listeners. <laughs> eh, there's nothing in Cage of Steel that I feel is particularly objectionable. Uh, no, but I'm making us do Stephen King next. Well, uh, the music used in this podcast was licensed by Epidemic Sound, and the transcripts were generated by Otter.ai. Have a question or comment for the team? You can find us on Twitter at, at @dog8mybookpod and on Instagram at mydog8mybookreport or by emailing at dog8mybookreport at gmail. We would be super excited to know what books you loved growing up, or what movie adaptations you either really hated or really loved. And uh, thanks for listening <laughs> to our weird fifth episode oh gosh do we have any listeners yet or left probably not (laughs) not yet